He announces it and sits down. And everyone responds with amazement. All who were speaking well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Now we all know the implication that's involved in that statement. Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote from me the proverb, physician, heal yourself and say, we have heard what you did in Capernaum. Do it here in your hometown too. Now, for us, it's hard to understand the tone of the voice. Like, you could read, isn't this Joseph's son? Or you can read it like, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, you can read it with so many different tones. And so what Jesus is telling you right now in his response, you should read that statement in a negative connotation. They were like, they were wowed and amazed, but at the same time as maybe what he said began to settle in, wait a minute, he just claimed to be the Messiah. Wait a minute, what? A, he, what? This is Joseph's son. He's an illegitimate child. And Jesus' responds, says, Surely you would respond and say, No doubt you'll quote me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. They want proof. What Jesus is implying is that they want proof. And so he says, You want me to do what I did in Capernaum. So he says, You've heard of the miracles that I've done in Capernaum. You've heard of the healings that I've done in Capernaum. But I haven't done them here in your hometown. And so now you've heard this. You're amazed by the stories that you've heard about me. You're amazed by the things I've said. But still in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I'm the illegitimate child that grew up in Nazareth, and I was just this punk little kid running around, and your way of thinking. And my goodness, I remember when you were a wee little lad. You can't be. So he's saying, surely you're wanting proof, right? Like everybody else got proof. And you want me to dance monkey for you too, because I'm your hometown person and so certainly I should be doing it for you if I'm doing it for everybody else as well and that's Jesus response pretty much is that you're asking for proof and the idea is physician heal yourself meaning if you're truly claiming to be a releaser of captives and a releaser of the poor then heal yourself as in your hometown start here you haven't done anything for us I mean, we raised you, we educated you, we helped you out in the farm when your family was struggling, and da-da-da-da-da, and, and now you come back to our community and you give nothing back. There's an entitlement here. There's a prove it here. There's a I don't believe that because I watched you grow up kind of a title here. And this is what Jesus is suggesting. Well, this is what Jesus is saying is that they're suggesting, they're implying. And he added, I tell you the truth, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel. Now, so the point that he says is nobody who grew up as a little child in their community and they grow up and they get older and then they become something and then come back to their hometown is ever really truly respected or accepted. Okay, because all anybody can ever see them as that little kid. And I've experienced that. Like my church that I grew up invested in me big time growing up. But when I came back and tried to actually like use my education, use all my training, it was kind of like, oh, whatever, you're just like a kid. And I had no like authority, I had no voice, and it was like, why did you support me all these years and not really back me or support me now that I have what you tried to give me? Jesus experienced on that a far greater scale, a far greater level. He's saying prophets are not accepted in our hometowns. People who achieve things and come back are usually not accepted. To answer the question, so the question for those who didn't hear was, how did Jesus' birth garner like all the spectacular things with the angels visiting the shepherds and the shepherds coming and all that kind of stuff? 
and they're so miraculous, and the Magi coming and all that kind of stuff. And then now we're here, and Nazareth doesn't seem to really accept that. Is that correct? So first, all that happened down in Bethlehem. No, Nazareth, Nazareth is like more than 70 miles north of that. And that is like 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem in that time period of history is like Moscow to California. Okay, so the, and without any like technology. The news is not going to travel as much. Now, will it travel? Probably. Okay, but in the background of all of that is the unfaithfulness of Mary. It's Mary sleeping around with another man and the way that they're thinking. And she's gotten pregnant with another guy. And now nobody knows who that guy is. She won't tell anybody who that guy is. And the story that might have gotten out is like, oh, God made me pregnant. And it's like, what? You, you dumb little liar, little girl. And in the culture, we're like, we know how the connotation of di- even just divorce and unfaithfulness was just like 50 years ago, let alone the ancient world of Judaism and that kind of stuff. That's they know. Hands-on practical in their own village is the scandal, the scandal of Mary's illegitimate pregnancy, not telling who the father is, not knowing who he was, her making up some story about God coming down on him, then Joseph, oh, poor Joseph, he's going to be with her anyways. And now he has to deal with all that stuff. And, and then Jesus is the product of that. And so, oh, we're already going to exclude him and make fun of him. And, and even in our, like, on a little house colonial, little house and prayer colonial kind of time, that would have been like, absolutely, everybody would look at you wrong and poorly. And today it's not that big of a deal. But in, let alone back then, and then there's this faint story coming up all the way from another region of the land that these angels came and shepherds came to visit, magi, like, oh, that's just Mary with more lies, trying to make it sound like anything that she did wrong or that kind of stuff. Now, to a certain extent, you can't blame them. Okay? I mean, you can blame them for the way that they might have treated Mary and Jesus, but you can't blame them for thinking, like, whatever, God made you pregnant, right? Because that's never happened, has never happened since then. That's what they know concretely in their village. Everything else that you and I know is stories that came from miles and miles and miles away that they have no witnesses to. The shepherds who just went around told a bunch of people, the magi who went back up to Persia. So, And then for the last 30-something years, he's been pretty insignificant. He's just worked with his father, and he built houses out of stone, and he went to parties, he went to weddings, he went to synagogue, he ate, he went to school, and that's it. If you did kind of buy into some of those stories, 30 years is a long time for those stories to die when you don't see anything special from him. So does that make sense? So, so now he comes in and you're hearing news stories about him doing miracles, but you still haven't seen anything. And to their credit, you're probably thinking, if he's that miraculous, why hasn't he been miraculous already for us? Like, we've had him for 30-something years, and we never saw one miracle. And then, like, two weeks after he leaves us, everybody else is seeing miracles. Why not us? I mean, to their credit, you would be highly suspicious as well. You'd be highly suspicious. The other thing is, they want a political deliver. For them, he's reading, like, I'm going to set the captives free. I'm going to set the poor free. I'm going to heal. The vast majority are thinking, I'm not any of those. I just want Rome's rear end kicked. 
and driven out of this land. And so if you got miraculous powers, then do it for us so we can start being delivered. That's the real deliverance. See, most people, most people don't care about all the other deliverances that Christ has come for. What they care about is Rome's boot getting off their neck. That's what they truly care about. And so they want that power. They, they, they don't want the power of forgiveness. They want the power, the right sword, the right armed sword that will conquer and destroy. What they're doing is they're rejecting him. Jesus seems to think, to answer your question in a different way, Jesus seems to think that they do have enough, that they should accept him. That they have enough that, yes, the stories of his miraculous birth probably should still be prevalent enough that that should say something to them. But probably my thinking is that if he grew up in your village, that's a podunk little village, probably no more than 50 families, then we know that he was without sin. So what they do have is 30 years of phenomenal character. That whenever all the other kids were getting in trouble, he wasn't. When the other kids were like lying or stole their first candy bar or their baklava, okay, or whatever it is, they like he wasn't doing that kind of stuff, okay. And, and no, maybe they would have a hard time seeing like he's a perfect child. They might say he's a little angel, because like us, you everybody would think like, oh, he's so good in public, but they're like, but probably at home he's still a little stinker, okay. But at the same time, he's going to have phenomenal character. He is God. And so Jesus is probably thinking, like, my character alone should be enough. Because you don't know anybody else with my caliber of character. And not in an arrogant way, but just in a factual way. And so he seems to think that they have enough that they don't need a miracle. And we'll talk about this later, too. But the, one of the only reasons that Jesus did miracles, well, one, he did it for compassion of the people, because he cares about people, and God does care about people. But remember, no matter how miraculous the miracle is and how miraculous the healing is, you still get to get sick and die again. The only true miracle is resurrection. I mean, think about it. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but it just meant that he got to die again. The only true miracle, the, 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 the only true healing, I don't want to, that's the wrong phrase, not the only true miracle. The only true, final, complete, ultimate healing is your final resurrection. For him, he is being compassionate. He is showing love. He is wanting to help them. But ultimately, the miracles are to validate his words. To people who don't know him, they need validation. To the people who watch him grow up, you shouldn't have to validate yourself. They should already know who you are. And that's probably why he's unwilling to do this for them. Because it's not about entertainment. It's not about power. It's about relationships. And he's already revealed himself of who he is as a man of God who has relationships with people. And so they reject. And at this point, he kind of tells them what it really is like. He shows the mirror to them. He holds the mirror up to their face and shows them exactly what they're doing. So verse 24, it says, And he added, I tell you the truth. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up and three and a half years and there was a great famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a woman who was a widow of Zarephath and Sidonia, meaning a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. 
Yet none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian Gentile general. What is he saying here? The point that he's saying is that in the time of Elijah and Elisha, Israel had become really corrupt. They had rejected God over and over and over again. They were involved in idolatry. They were involved in national injustices. They were oppressing the poor. They were oppressing people. They were rejecting people. And they were making money. And they were, being, making, and they were becoming powerful off of that. And Elijah came to convict them. And yet they didn't answer. The people of God had turned their back on God and they rejected Elijah. And Elijah was sent outside the nation of Israel. And he was sent to the Gentiles, those evil, unclean, despicable Gentiles. And he was sent to a widow, a widow Gentile. And he fed her for three years. And he took care of her. And he raised her son from the grave. And then when Elisha came, he didn't heal the lepers of Israel. He healed the leper of a general. And not just a, gen, not just a, a Gentile from another nation, a general who was oppressing them and killing them in wars. This is the equivalent of a Roman soldier. And he went to them. And what Jesus is basically saying is that Israel was worse than them. Israel, the godly people... The, the people of God, not the godly people. The people of God were rejecting God and rejecting their prophets. And yet the pagan oppressors and the pagans of other towns were accepting God. And every Jew knows their history. Every Jew knows that. Every Jew knows that that's why they went into exile. And every Jew determined that they'll never go into exile again. And they got obedient to the law. And they said, that will never happen again. We are good, godly people. We follow the Torah and all this kind of stuff. And what Jesus is saying, you haven't changed. You're just like those Israelites. Now they would say, we don't worship idols. You're treating everybody else like crap like you always have. And you're rejecting God like you always have. And when his prophet comes, you think you're better than him, like everybody else has. You might be doing it in a different way, but changing your clothing is not changing your character. Do you know how insulting that would be? You, you've taken pride that. That would be like us being like, we're not like the Pharisees. We're, we're not like those people. And Jesus shows up and says, yeah, you are. You're just as bad as them. Or at least I'm not a drug dealer. Or at least I'm not out like in the slave slave trade industry making money that way. And Jesus shows up and says, you're no different than them. You're just like them. That would be so insulting. And especially if you knew somewhere deep down inside he was right. Because people who are usually kind of like that know somewhere deep inside they are like that. But they have put up facades and done things to even lie to themselves and deceive themselves into thinking, I'm a good person. And so then that makes you even angry because you don't like to think that you're really like that. And you know you're really like that. But you've done all these things in your life to keep yourself from thinking that you're like that. And then now he's shoving the mirror in your face and you don't want to look in that mirror. You've done a really good job hiding and breaking all those mirrors. And now he's there. And then it just makes you even angrier. You insulted me. And now you made me see myself for who I really am. And I know who am I am. And they're angry. And what Jesus is making very clear is, I'm coming for those who are oppressed and those who actually want to be healed, who want to be delivered. The question is whether the rejection of Jesus negated his status and identity and mission. 
And what this story is showing is if the legitimacy of a prophet's ministry is based on whether the people accept him or not, then that means all the prophets were not legitimate. It does not matter whether the people accept you or not as legitimate. It only matters whether God accepts you or not. We, the people, don't really matter. Ultimately, the will of Yahweh is what really matters. And Yahweh said, This is my son, and whom I'm well pleased at his baptism. And that's all that matters. When the people come along and say, We reject you, prophet. We reject your mission. doesn't matter. And Jesus gives proof of that and says, I don't care about your opinion. Because we all know that Elijah and Elisha were the prophets of God, but they're rejected by their people too. Your approval does not determine my legitimacy. Only God's approval determines my legitimacy. And this is so important for us to understand because most of our problems, you and my, me especially, and our, our fear of rejection and our sense of self-worth is really largely based on how the people around us accept us or don't accept us. And we're all, we all struggle with that. We all struggle with this sense that I want them to accept me or, or especially like when parents like start attacking me, like how dare you teach that? What do you mean by that? And, and it's very easy to think like, I'm not a good teacher. I can't do this. I'm messing up. Like, oh, and your, your, your self-esteem starts kicking, your low self-esteem starts kicking in. You start questioning your ministry. Or if people oppose you and they're against your ideas or you're trying to accomplish or build this project or this program and there's all these obstacles and people are saying, yeah, but, yeah, but. And it's very easy for us to think, well, maybe I, I'm not really truly accepted. Maybe I don't really matter. Maybe I'm really not worthy. Maybe I really can't pull this off. Maybe this is just a dumb dream. Maybe I don't have what it takes. And that's our number one problem, is that we don't find our identity in Christ, really, truly, holistically, and concretely. And if we, all of us, me included, could really, truly rest in Christ and really, truly, holistically, and completely accept that we are a child of God, though not worthy of salvation, so loved by God that he accepted us. And he is, and as long as we are following him and doing his will, then we're okay. And not even the gates of hell, all the authority and power will be able to prevail against us. And no matter how many of these people reject you, there's so many people in the body of Christ who he will bring into your life and stand with you. The problem is we have bigger ears for the naysayers than we do for the people that God is sending our life and supporting us. And we're more attracted to the negative comments, because we're masochists, than we are to the positive encouragement that God is bringing in our life. And, and this is the point that Peter is making, is that the key to truly having a successful Christian life is truly like finding and accepting and embracing your identity in God and your identity in Christ. And if we could really truly do that, then that's when everything else is just water off your back. But that requires a deep immersion into who God is. And that's what Christ did. He often got away alone and immersed himself in prayer and found himself in God. The point is that rejecting Yahweh's prophet is risky business. 
One never knows what Yahweh will have him do or what other people Yahweh will send the prophet to as a result of the rejection. The threat is that they may miss out on Yahweh's blessing. And he warns them not to make the same mistake the Israelites made during the days of Elijah and Elisha. For there are others who respond to him. And so Jesus' ministry begins with, the axe is at the tree. And if you continue in this path of rejection, then I will go to other people, just like Elijah and Elisha went to other people when Israel rejected God's plan and the acts of Assyria and Babylon came to their tree. Verse 28, When they heard this, all the people in the synagogue, all the people, were filled with a rage. That word rage is like a shaking, trembling, I can't contain myself anymore kind of a rage. And they brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him from the cliff. But he passed through his crowd and went on his way. That's serious anger. You watch this little boy grow up in your village for 30 years. You've gone to synagogue with him. You've gone to school with him. You've seen him take care of so many people because Jesus didn't all of a sudden become a passionate person who delivered people at the age of 30. He's been that all along. And you've watched him do this, but then he just kind of says who you are for where, who you really are and you become so angry that you're willing to grab this guy and just throw him off a cliff you know how brutal that is how messed up that is can you imagine like think about the kids that have grown up with your kids the kids in your neighborhood and you just get so mad at one of them and they're really not really a bad person they've just kind of called it a spade a spade and you didn't like that and you're so angry that you're willing to just like grab them and just throw them off of a cliff like, that's like messed up. That's so messed up. But it also shows you how true to home he struck them. Most people who get insulted either, one, just think, well, okay, you're full of crap. I'm going to toss it out the window. Or, wow, that really hurt my feelings. I'm kind of angry, upset. But then you go home and you're okay. Or you have really low self-esteem and you can't stop thinking about that over and over again. But mostly it makes you feel depressed. It takes a lot to insult somebody to the point where they're willing to like actually come and kill you. That's not, a, that's not usually a default response for people. Most people get depressed. They try to kill him. And yet he just walks through the crowd. Two things are happening. First, Luke is starting Jesus' ministry with immediate rejection. And what this shows you is from the very beginning, he's not going to be accepted from a, by a large amount of Israelites. And what this is doing is foreshadowing the ultimate rejection where they won't throw him off the cliff, they'll throw him onto the cross. The second thing that this is doing is it's showing that he's not going to die on their time frame, he's going to die on his time frame. Yes, he did come to die, but he came to die when God decides it's time and the way that God has decided. And the fact that he could easily pass the crowd makes it very clear to you that when that guy, that Roman soldier, says, take yourself down off the cross if you're truly the Son of God, you know he can. You know he can. But he's there because now it's time. But he's not off the cliff because it's not time. These are the two main things we're emphasizing with the crowd's anger. On the other side, this whole passage is showing that this is the heart of his ministry. He has come to release the captives, 
only those who see themselves as truly needing to be released. And there's going to be two kinds of people in Israel. There's going to be those who really truly see their need for God. And they're going to see that they're truly oppressed. And they're going to be arms out, ready to be released and delivered. And there's going to be the others who do not see themselves needing release. They're self-reliant. They don't need anybody else. How dare you come in and tell me that life is different than the way I think life is. And they're going to respond in anger, and they're going to try to kill him. And these are the two responses we're going to see in his ministry. 